Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello all, welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with you. And I want to remind you that this podcast is for entertainment and education purposes only. This does not constitute working with a mental health provider. Do strongly recommend you find someone in your area to work on your unique issues. So today's podcast is also the start of a particular period of time in the calendar, which I'll let our guests talk a little more about. Uh, but this is an individual who has been trying to find the right time and scheduling to be able to bring them on. But today we're going to be talking with David Khalid. David, Kalili. Kalili. I have a habit of screwing up names. So David Kalili is a licensed marriage and family therapist like myself, board certified sexologist, focusing on working with men, couples, therapy, uh, couples therapy, multi-ethnic individuals. He founded the Rush Relationship Wellness Group in 2021 in order to address shame and anxiety that shows up all too often in sex and relationships. He received his master's degree in counseling psychology from Golden State University and a master's degree in sexual sexuality studies from San Francisco State University, where my fo- where his focus where his focus was on Middle Eastern queer folks and tra- kink and trauma. He also specializes in working with multi-heritage couples and those who have immigrated recently or are first-generation American-born. Welcome to Untying Knots, David. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. Not a problem. So how did you get here? Yeah, I, um, let's see, you know, both of my parents immigrated at a, um, I was going to say at a young age, but they, they immigrated at different ages. I was, wasn't even born yet when they immigrated, but the idea was that they were actually going to go back to Iran and um, start a family there. However, the revolution happened. And so they ended up uh, leaving Iran to go back to the States. Um, so both of my parents are, um, you know, immigrants, my mom from Europe, my dad from Iran. Um, I was born in California and um, have always kind of known from a young age that I wanted to do something around therapy, something around like healing, working with people, working around conversations and relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and in my family, both of my parents talked very openly about sex and sexuality. My mom is Catholic and my dad was Muslim. Um, neither of them were of the type to, you know, force conversion on one another because they got married. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, but they were talked openly about religion. They talked openly about spirituality. They talked openly about sex. We had lots of jokes about sex. Uh, and then I would see people that were not from that type of uh, family structure or family comfort and would really tighten up around sex or mm. um, uh, feel lots of shame, embarrassment, anxiety, those type of things. Uh, and as I started to go into my schooling for psychology, I uh, started to take more sexuality classes at San Francisco State University and really see um, how just in love I was getting with the topic and talking about it. And I ended up working at sex shops in Texas and California um, as while I was going to grad school. So that was good kind of, um, you know, different types of support, training and education for this, this realm, this world. 
Um, and over time and time again, I just saw people with a lot of intense shame and anxiety um, around sex and sexuality. So I wanted to help them with that. And then on top of that, you know, working with Middle Eastern folks, uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to, that can go into talking around, especially around sexuality um, and sexual identity and talking openly about sex and pleasure. And so I wanted to kind of create a space where we can learn to talk about that and it doesn't have to be this topic that gets shied away from. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause especially hearing that we're talking about both Catholic and Muslim faiths is like, those have not gotten a great history when it comes to talking about sex in general. Right. Yeah. So to yeah. hear that these, these two very different faiths, let alone they're still connected to people. We're able to find that Frank, that frankness is, both heartwarming and it's like, hmm. okay, tell me more. Cause this is what we, I think we need way more of that in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that warms my heart to hear that uh, reflected back. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, my father passed away 10 years ago um, and I hold a lot in my heart and my mind, you know, to, to honor in him. And uh, one thing that he really gave me was this warmth and non-judgmentalness and compassion towards other people Um you know, I, I think he's really helped me with that in mind. Um, and then, yeah, for both of them to just kind of talk openly and about sex and then joke about sex and um, let me ask questions at times, even when I didn't want to ask questions or, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they just made sure that that space was there mm -hmm. uh, was very, yeah, very mm -hmm. important. So as I said, as I said, when this airs, which is going to be March, um, it's a particular time of the month. Uh, it's part of the calendar year and what's going on, especially around this time of year. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's the uh, Persian new year falls on the, the first day of spring, the, the spring equinox. And so that changes uh, each year, but it's generally around March 20th, March 21st. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the States this year, it'll be March 21st. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's Persian new year. That is, in my mind, it makes more sense to mark the beginning of a new year and no disrespect to other cultures, or anything like that, mm -hmm. but um, to be, mark the beginning of a new year at the first day of spring. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a three week long party, essentially mm -hmm. <laughs> a holiday, you know, and it starts with, uh, let's see if I can remember this correctly. Um, you know, it, it starts with uh, gathering together to, uh, yeah, it's called uh, Chahar Shambhe Sori. Uh, mm -hmm. gathering together for uh, a bonfire that represents mm -hmm. kind of cleansing of yourself through to the new new year, uh, based on Zoroastrian tradition, by the way. Um, and so on Chahar Shambesuri, it's 14 days before Persian New Year. Um, you do what you do with, you know, every other time of year is you get together with your family with lots of food and mm -hmm. have good time, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but the point is to jump over fire and you have this saying, which is essentially like um, you're telling the fire, you take my yellow, I'll take your red. Mm -hmm. And it's saying, you take my sickness, I'll take your, your vibrancy, your life. Mm -hmm. um, there may be Persians that are listening to this that are saying he's saying this completely wrong. I'm open to hearing that. <laughs> but, you know. There is, but metaphorically, there is some sort of exchange of energy that takes place. Totally, I know there yeah. Are I know there are certain aspects, and depending on which African culture you're coming from, if whether it's not a flame, it's going through to the river and essentially mm. being dunked into the river to let go of the troubles and take in the flexibility and pure and the re, re, um, 
positive energy that comes up from the water itself wonderful coming back out so yeah it's it's a there is a commonality across all of the cultures it's just a question of which element and why right yeah 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 and so so that's the first one and then and then there's persian new year itself and then after then there's i think it's 13 days after persian new year is uh sizda bedar which mm-hmm. is uh get as close to a body of water as you can get bring your family and lots of food and some instruments and then you're celebrating the end of persian new year and it's it's a good way to to go out i say mm-hmm. um and you know it, it's such an important holiday that that even some prisoners in Iran will be given time off during that time to to celebrate. And it's hard for me to say that right now because right as we're talking, what's going on mm-hmm. in Iran as you know, there's fifteen thousand protesters have been arrested. If there's probably way more, uh, mm-hmm. and every single one of them has been announced that they are um, uh, at risk of execution for trying to overthrow the government is what they're right. saying. I mean, they are trying to overthrow the government and right. it should be overthrown. Um, so that is also another big part of Iranian history is many revolutions, many regime changes. Um, but to speak to this particularly, this is um, Noruz, which is, it's a wonderful time of year. I really, I get excited about it. I, I really, my mm-hmm. heart opens up. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to just share lots of food with people and, and uh, good times. Mm-hmm. So it's good to be on this podcast at this this time of year too. Very nice. And so I'm wondering, what do you what would you say people should start learning about doing mental health with Middle Eastern people of of that ancestry? Yeah, you know, I I say, um, you know, working from a place of you know hum- cultural humility. Obviously, I think you can do a ton of reading and a ton of research and. Um, there will not be that that competency. I'm, I know that that the cultural competency hasn't been used for many years, but I'm still kind of reeling from it. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, <laughs> we all still, are. We yeah. all are. <laughs> but the idea of competency means that there's a some sort of checklist that you can mark off and say, "You've done it and completed." And in reality, cultures are always growing, changing, yeah. adapting. So, yeah. competence is not our best bet. Humility <laughs> is the one that I know a lot of people use. Yeah, but just cultural adaption. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know, and there was a um, a networking meeting that you and I were both at, and I really appreciated something that you had shared there, which I'll, I'll share now. It's, you talked about you know humans aren't computers to uh, to yeah, paraphrasing, but humans aren't mm. computers, and so we can't manualize them, mm-hmm. and we can't treat them in that way. Mm-hmm. And that that line has been kind of stuck in my head a little bit in, the, in a good way of like, yeah, that is a really positive way of looking at it or it really resonates with me. Um, so all that to say, you know, what I'm about to share, please know that this is not a, okay, David, the half Persian said this, so go take this mm-hmm. and work with all the, all the <laughs> Persians or Middle Eastern folks that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of stigma around uh, mental health and mental wellness, you know, going to therapy within the Middle Eastern community um, it is seen as, you know, something that only crazy people do and it, and that if you are having mental health issues, that it is a really bad thing and that you should steer away from, um, you know, the, the therapeutic industry in Iran is from what I can see, um, is hit or miss. And it really just depends on, uh, if you're getting someone who has been trained or who follows very, um, you know, heavily religious views that are 
you know, mm-hmm. from the Islamic regime, uh, which mm-hmm. is all of their, you know, universities, or if they're studied in other places. Um, but so I would, you know, I would just say that, you know, understanding that for a lot of Middle Eastern folks, this is a um, a big venture for them to step into, to go into to mental health and to take care of themselves in that way, that maybe they're not consciously working against uh, the stigma, but there's, you know, generations of belief around, you know, don't get that, that help and don't trust others when you're getting that help. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, you know, I think this is kind of bred by the Iranian revolution, but there's a great deal of distrust within the Persian community of one another. And, you know, I was reflecting on this the other day while I was reading the news about what's going on in Iran right now is, you know, during the Iranian revolution, there was a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, like narking on one another, just, mm-hmm. you know, people were surviving. I have family members that we know the ones who were talking to the government, um, mm-hmm. you know, behind our, behind the other family members back. Um, and then there would be these moments out, even outside of the family where the government is showing that they are following you, they're surveilling you, they know who you are, where you are. Um, and so that really does breed this awareness of surveillance, this awareness of, you know, uh, we don't know who we can trust and how to trust them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may be a, an element of that in when you're working with, with Persian folks. I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but again, just... Um, no, but I think, it, and, and I would say this is not one that just lies directly with Middle Eastern. I think, especially in the world we're living now, yeah, even more so, there are multiple places and cultures across this world that also have been dealing with that same aspect. Sure. And how yeah. has it been, in some ways, in in inbred mm-hmm. and encouraged? I mean, I think that's one of the one of those elements that's very big in African American culture around the difficulties with mental health now as opposed to what it was maybe centuries ago because that Mm. aspect of who's snitching right and whether and are they snitching out of fear or are they snitching essentially out of the desire for something else Uh uh-huh uh-huh and the fear i think can be a little more understood and i'm not going to say totally forgiven but it's a fear of that whatever else is being offered to them yeah that's the harder one. And I think that's a harder one to be forgiven. Yeah. No, I'm like a few family members just popped to mind as you said that, like I can think of the one and then how, how they've been talked about and how we think of them. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I, you know, I've, I've had calls with uh, most Persians will see that I'm Persian by my last name, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but not always. And some, so I've had some that go, actually, I wasn't sure if I knew you're a middle Eastern, but I didn't know if you're a Persian Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that I know that you're Persian, actually, I don't want to put another Persian therapist. Thank you very much. And I actually understand that. I actually mm-hmm. not understand it, but I'm not surprised is maybe right. a better way to put it. Um, and others that are obviously, you know, not as surprised of just saying like, great, I want a Persian therapist. Right. Right. And that goes back to, again, what type of experiences they've had. Mm-hmm. And especially ones who have their greater, who, who are existing in their profession when then getting sanctioned by the government. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious to, you know, uh, I'm friends with some Persian therapists on LinkedIn and we've had some mm-hmm. conversations, but I'd like to, or, you know, a uh, therapist in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'd like to have further conversations with them to really understand what that, mm-hmm. that industry is like out there and that, you know, that mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. And 
and as much as I hate to say it, we're both licensed by the state of California in this case, yep. where that standpoint of, oh, we're also sanctioned by the government, but we're yeah. not necessarily the same function. There's that same, that's not the same relationship that's going on there, right. which I'm sure is also one of those things that the assumptions don't get dissuaded when you have the ones who say they don't want to have a Persian therapist. Right, right. So I uh, know I've had at least a couple of Palestinian as well as one Iranian client in my practice over the years. So I'm, for those here, I'm quite comfortable working with uh, people of Middle Eastern ancestry as well. I admit I don't know all of the intricacies, yeah. like you want to enlighten me on the season, the seasonality, but what would you like to also let um, new therapists entering the field know about working with Middle Eastern clients that Obviously, we're not getting in our schools. Uh-huh. I think, you know, there is a, again, speaking in generalities, there's a level of indirectness that is expected and is um, rewarded or, you know, socialized, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Western, Western therapy practices where, like, directness is kind of the ultimate goal in some ways mm-hmm. or is, is a sign of, like, emotional health, mm-hmm. um, I would encourage you to steer away from using that as a metric of like, emotional health. And like, yeah, it's great to name boundaries very directly and to remind people of them, but it, it carries an extra weight to it with collectivistic families mm-hmm. um, and those who are raised to that it's incredibly rude to be direct, uh, mm-hmm. even if it's about your needs and even if you are very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so to, and it's tricky and there's no clear answer, but to to hold that in mind that if you may be asking them, how's everything going? Are we moving in the right direction? Are we, and they may be saying yes, but they may be uncomfortable to tell you that it's actually not moving in the right direction or that mm-hmm. they may fear that they're uh, rude or impolite by, um, by saying so. Mm-hmm. And I think also, you know, you, you're going to see that in some relationships where there's uh you know, multi-heritage couple or multicultural, multiracial couple, uh, where one partner is Middle Eastern and one partner is not. There's, um, I've seen this quite a bit, where the non-Middle Eastern partner is like, just fucking tell me, just tell me what you want, tell me what you know. And the Middle Eastern partner, um, it's not either. It's they're they're not practiced in it. They don't believe in that. That's there or just feels really rude. It feels like they're moving against their culture. I know mm. in my relationships in the past, it's definitely felt that way. I've had to move through some of my cultural learnings. So that, so on that standpoint, because I know there are occasions where I've talked to other couples where it's like, and they have been a mixed race and it's like, so you don't feel like you need to actually spend any time learning about your partner's ancestry, what maybe social norms there. Right. Just, just because they were also born in America. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like, yeah, that's not, that curiosity is not there for some people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think is also one of the things that makes for a much healthier relationship is having curiosity as a long-term energy. But, you know, we'll save some of that for when we talk about the couples episode later right, yeah. in the year. <laughs> but I think that's a key thing to remember, To Either way, whether you're dealing with uh, someone of Middle Eastern ancestry individually or you're dealing with them in couples situation. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, 
I mean, we can talk about it a little bit later or now, but there's the the concept mm -hmm. of tarof in Middle East in Persian community. It's T A R O F is the phonetic mm -hmm. spelling, uh, but it kind of captures that indirectness that I was talking about, where um, you know, I'll give some examples. Um, you know, you're supposed to decline offers. Mm -hmm. you know, a few times before you accept them. Other mm -hmm. cultures have this too, but, you know, it's, it's a way of, um, you know, if you accept too quickly, you're seen as like desperate or greedy. Mm -hmm. I think it's also, this is pre-revolution, but I think this was also really um, fortified by the diaspora related to the revolution. You mm -hmm. know, if, if you can show or present that you're wealthy enough or well-off enough or comfortable enough then you're showing that I've survived that diaspora. I've survived that immigration. I've survived that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm this model minority sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I would be curious to hear about Tarof existing pre-revolution, you know, in like the sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very much a current thing now. So like I have, I still have, <laughs> you're supposed to fight when uh, fight over paying the bill. That's a Tarof thing. You know, so I have bruises on my arm. My joke is I have bruises on my arm from my uncles elbowing me to pay the bill. Um, you know, if I, if you tell me that you like this ring that I'm wearing, uh, I'm supposed to immediately just give it to you because, okay. like, oh, Perry, you like that ring? Great. You have it. No, please, please take it. Please take it. And then I may have resentments towards you later on for actually taking that ring because you're supposed to say, no, 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 no. And it's that dance that mm -hmm. to some extent, I think there's some elegance to it but when it gets to that level <laughs> right. it can be really um yeah it really so, i think it harms relationships so that brings up a, the aspect of as you said there's a sort of a dance to it mm -hmm. it sort of brings up the question is one how did that sort of come into being because this yeah. is also an example of power dynamics that are at play uh, yeah. which yeah again not a subject that gets well taught in both our classes let alone in our agencies yeah. Uh, especially in that cultural humility standpoint. But just that aspect of there's also a cultural understanding, or it's always say that dance that everyone knows this step and how that doesn't get translated and shared out with others. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, where was it learned? How is it maintained? Mm -hmm. I know I commonly ask client, one of my questions to clients, either individual or couples is like, so what were the messages for you growing up around things like anger or sadness? Yeah. So there's a maintained about what you're doing, especially if you're an adult uh -huh. growing up, how this came into being. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, um, it's funny. I was just the other day, it was, I met someone who was married to a Persian man and almost immediately she brought up Tarof. And mm -hmm. she was asking and, and just, we just joined into this big conversation about it because it, it holds a lot. And I think it is a big mm -hmm. piece, um, big point of contention between couples, you know, one mm -hmm. partner's Persian, the other is not because for others, they're the non-Persian folks. They say, uh, why are we doing this? What's the, what's mm -hmm. the point? This is just a useless dance. This is a performance. This is like the TSA of gift giving, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the Persians might agree, but it's like, but uh, everyone else is playing this game and everyone else, this is a part of us. This is like, and if it's so uncomfortable for me to stop this process and mm -hmm. maybe I need to, but please understand, you know, to the partner that 
you're at, this is a big ask that you're asking of me to just stop engaging in this. And also mm-hmm. like un, there's a the habit that's formed that you has you have to kind of hold off of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think also then that's the issue too, where we get into problems with some of the other issues like uh, borderline and narcissism as well. Mm. Like the splitting that can happen. Oh, the splitting or that sense of entitlement. Uh-huh. And how does that play out when either you're dealing with a partner who isn't uh, Persian or is Persian and is expecting this dance as, and ultimately to walk away with that ring, no matter what, right. as part of the entitlement of the process. Yeah. Right. You know, you, that's a good point, right? Because then it's, uh, it would be entitled for me to expect my partner to just follow suit into this dance mm-hmm. and go against their upbringing that says like, this is indirect and you know, for them, it's rude to be indirect. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Cause it lands into other larger problems. Yeah. So I think that's a great place for us to take a break there and we will come back and explore some more things on our second half. So stay tuned folks. So this is Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with David Kalili, licensed marriage and family therapist as well. So stay tuned. Can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Hear about personal growth, building a better business, inspirational life stories, and personal branding. You'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks, for the second half of Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with David Kalili, licensed marriage and family therapist also. So we've been having an interesting conversation about uh, just providing a basis for when talking about Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern culture uh, and such. But one of the special realities of your practice, which is uh, Roche Relational Wellness, which is a group practice, correct? 
Yeah, it's actually um, Rouse. I, I forgot Rouse. to. Yeah, it's in San Francisco. Yep. Gotcha. Rouse, uh, relational wellness. You also do a lot of men's groups. And so I'm curious, how does men's sexuality come into this and into a lot of your work, and especially with the Middle Eastern notations around sexuality? And I know I've had a conversation with one of my clients around masculinity and having to, him yeah. to be more aware of what's going on in those dynamics. Yeah, no, that, thank you for that. Um, yeah, it shows up quite a bit in my men's group. So the, the men's groups that I have are specifically around anxiety to sex and relationships. Mm. And so for a lot of the men, even calling me or going to the website or especially joining the group and talking openly is really pushing against this gendered expectation for men to just be super confident, super competent, confident, capable Mm-hmm. and all knowing about sex and other people's bodies mm-hmm. when in reality that's obviously not the case and that is a super unrealistic and damaging expectation mm-hmm. and so to have this space in my mind the, the the goal was to have a space where guys can talk about their uh, relationship to sex to gender to relationships uh in a purest authentic way as possible and not through this particular lens of masculinity that they feel like they have to perform through or, mm-hmm. or speak through mm-hmm. um and so you know we ha- we have a good amount of middle eastern men black and brown men white men um men who have immigrated men who have multi multiple generations within the states and it's been cool to see them experience togetherness through this anxiety through the feeling mm-hmm. of you know, I, I have to, or I've been told that I have to know everything. And now it, um, this anxiety is, is, um, showing up because I have this expectation of myself and mm. then to challenge these gendered feelings of, you know, does that make me less of a man? Because I don't know, does that make me less of a man because I'm learning about sex or mm-hmm. because I, uh, want to get, this is a big one because I, want more time before I have sex with a partner. That's a huge one for guys. Like, so they feel more about that. Yeah. What they does feel that like mean? they, um, because of porn or, or movies or whatever it might be, or, or stories that, they, or some men like to have sex spontaneously, but they feel like they have to have, they have to always want to have sex spontaneously and to always be ready. And, uh, for some men and for some men's nervous systems, they need a little more time to warm up to someone, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's trauma related or not, they just need more time to get comfortable to then fully go into the parasympathetic nervous system to be sexual and safe and present and, and then can have the, the sexual functioning that goes along with that, which is what they end up focusing a lot on and then get, um, frustrated or angry or sad if they have erectile dysfunction issues. So well, from one of the ways I'm hearing this is that they actually want to do the relationship building mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and having the actual connection with the person for intimacy, true, better intimacy sex, as opposed to just what some could call physical lust sex. Right. Yeah. So where do you think the notion that they have to always be ready comes from? Yeah, I think it's, it's multiple um, multiple influences. You know, mm-hmm. I think porn is is one of them. I think that there's this um, this drive that 
men can have or, or that testosterone can encourage of kind of goal directedness and, and mm-hmm. drive and all that. Um, and, but then there's this feeling of, um, you know, I think bell hooks talks about it wonderfully just in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, conquering and this, uh, the dominator culture, the dominator model mm-hmm. where it becomes about conquering and taking and achieving rather than about relating and connecting mm-hmm. and sharing. And, mm-hmm. um, I think the more that that dominator model gets encouraged and enforced, the more that these men are going to be faced with this feeling of, no, I'm not supposed to connect with my partner. I'm supposed to mm-hmm. overtake them and, mm-hmm. you know, conquer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I would could also think I was just thinking is like, Oh yeah. How many romance novels have we seen written where it's that is perpetuated. But yeah. no, I think the bell hooks one's got way more basis for it. And I think that also falls into what I was mentioning earlier with the issues with uh, borderline and narcissism. How did that entitlement yeah. get put into that mechanism, even just around the shift from a ring to another person's body? Yeah, like that is mine now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which also gets back into some of the, um, so I always say the niceties and histories around marriage and sex and sexuality, depending on where you are in the world too. Yeah. 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 And so I, you know, I see a lot of these guys in, in the group feel like, um, yeah, they just have to be that type of, uh, Lothario, you know, that, mm. that really does just kind of, um, seduces a woman or a partner and then immediately has sex with them. And then, mm-hmm. you know, isn't interested in the emotional pieces, but then when they are interested in the emotional pieces, they're ashamed to admit it and they don't talk about it and they internalize it. Even though there are definitely women out there who would really love that. Uh-huh. Want the, <laughs> the whining and the dining, so to speak, or at least yeah. the walk in the park and let's talk about our thoughts. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, the big piece in these groups is to say that there's not one way to be a man, to have sex, to do this or that. And I think just that all or nothing expectation that is put on lots of folks. But in this instance, in this conversation for for men, the the feeling like they have to know it all and do it all. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. and so from there into the aspect of just sexuality in general, which again, <laughs> some would say, you're a good Persian boy. Why are you studying sexuality and talking about all uh, that smut? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that was, that was definitely a question. Was, well, you know, why aren't you going to be an engineer or a doctor or, mm-hmm. um, you know, IT? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I still ask myself, why didn't I get into IT? <laughs> Actually, I, I tried IT and I got out of it very quickly. It is not for everybody. No. No. <laughs> But really, so to that question, I mean, I know you mentioned a little bit with your family history and so forth, but what else do you find, what else is both interesting and enlightening that you find with this subject? Um, yeah, so the, that feeling of, you know, I, the conversations that I had, I used to work at a, at a Moroccan bar uh, right when I turned 21, my dad was friends with uh, an owner of a Moroccan bar and restaurant, and he was able to get me a bartending job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, nepotism worked really well in that, in that realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hung out, I made friends and I hung out with all the other coworkers who had, had all immigrated from Tunisia and Algeria and Turkey and Morocco. And, um, mm-hmm. 
and we could, you know, share lots of stories and insights about uh, their views on sex and sexuality. And um, it was really interesting to to see the cultural walls that I would hit up against. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing that that I've experienced as a, as a third culture kid is um, never really uh, never fitting into one category. I'm, I was never American enough, and I was never Persian enough. I was mm-hmm. never straight enough. I was never gay enough. I was never white enough and I was never mixed race enough. And so I was just kind of bounced around from these categories, um, which in some ways I think helped me become a therapist because I could see the different workings of different cultures. And mm-hmm. I also would fit into different cultures and different things so that people could kind of speak openly. And so some of the guys that would speak openly about their views of women and sexuality and um, where there was actually less of a, a label in some ways where, you know, uh, men's sexuality and male, male sexuality was actually kind of, and is a little uh, accepted as long as you're not talking about it. And as long as you're not labeling it, and as long as you end up just getting married to a nice hmm. woman anyways, later on in life. Ah, um, uh, Yes. And that so, particular. yeah, that flavor. And, you know, my, uh, my master's program, when I did the, my thesis on Middle Eastern queer folk, uh, did a number of, uh, you know, one-on-one interviews with uh, folks who had either, you know, were third culture themselves or mm-hmm. they immigrated. Um, and that was one recurring theme that we heard about quite a bit was, um, yeah, yeah, I get it. You it makes sense. Go have sex, have fun, but you're going to have to get married at some point anyway. So go have your fun. And, it, and then they've led to this like, well, wait a second. What did you do, dad? What did, mm-hmm. you know, what was your, and what's your history? And are you totally honest with yourself and with us? Are you open? Are you? Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it is interesting that for some people it becomes this uh, developmentally appropriate thing to ex- experiment sexually, but then, you have to go to kind of the heteronormative. Which it's into that aspect of the, I guess some would say it's the duty to do uh-huh. this. And yeah. where does that generate resentment? How yes. does that not generate resentment? Which then becomes an aspect of how does this show up for your kids? Yeah. And into the next generation. Yeah. And then how do those, the intergenerational relationships you know, how do they especially, thrive? And, you know, especially when either we've got the classic pressure of we want grandkids or we're going to live with this identity. Oh, guess what? We can still adopt. Yeah. Still go. There are other ways we can have kids. We just don't have to have this connection. Right. Which, uh, which can also come up when we talk about the poly and so forth. It's just that to that aspect of from where and then when we talk LGBT is that aspect too of how does the sexuality come up too with the culture in the standpoint of we all heard periodically stay within your own group or on your earth with the culture how does that play out especially when the aspect and whether it's LGBT or not when the partner isn't of mm. Persian or Middle Eastern ancestry as well yeah, I, and I think that's when it comes into just creating a space or encouraging a space where you can 
partners can hear each other out without having to really accept or agree or no, not accept, but agree. You know, like mm-hmm. you don't have to understand, but you have to accept that that is your partner's reality, your partner's cultural upbringing. Um, they're socializing. Mm-hmm. That, that's again, another thing that I see, and we'll, we can talk about it in those episodes, but just mm-hmm. that like confusion, contempt towards the other of like, why do you do it that way? Mm-hmm. And stop mm-hmm. it. Be like me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, also, I think always goes back to a, a variant on the meatloaf pan, or no, the pot roast pan. Uh-huh. What's You're that familiar one? with that one? Okay. Yeah. So the, depending, on how, depending on who's telling the story, it is this aspect of this little girl is watching her mom cut up a pot roast, and she cuts off the end of it and puts it in the pan, and the little girl asks, why do you cut the end off the pot roast? It always makes it so dry and unfun to eat. And she said, well, uh-huh. that's because that's what your mom, what, your, what my grandmother did. Uh-huh. And so then she goes, mom goes and asks the grandmother, why do you cut the end off the pod rose? And she says, well, I don't know. That's what your grandmother did. And in this case, in this story, the great grandmother is still alive. Uh-huh. And so they go and ask her that same question. And her response was, oh, the pants were too small in those days. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. There's uh his name is Seth Godin. He does like business and marketing mm-hmm. discussions. And he has a big thing about uh, the types of people that are, that have this narrative of like, because that's how it's always done. Mm-hmm. That's their answer to all these things, you know, and that's the, mm-hmm. the, the neophobes he calls them. Um, you know, they just kind of stick to that without questioning because that's how it's always done. And yeah, that's what I like about our work as therapists is, um, you know, in my men's groups, I say something similar that you asked to, to your clients, you know, what are the mm-hmm. messages that you received growing up as a guy, mm-hmm. um, just in general, like just open-ended. And then we look at them and say, okay, which ones do you want to keep going? Which ones do you feel like are in service to you? And which ones do you want to leave behind mm-hmm. and acknowledge that they may have done something for you or acknowledge the harm that they've done to you, but you get to make that choice. Well, very much so. And even asking is like, why did they come into, why did this tradition come into existence yeah. in the first place and do the circumstances that created it still exist now? Yeah. And we've got a few thousand years worth of history, people. We now have indoor plumbing. We now have electricity. <laughs> right. Some of those things probably influenced by the lack of those present. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think um, the other thing about my groups that I really like is I heard a, a quote the other day that, uh, you know, you can't hide in groups like you can hide in individual therapy. Mm-hmm. And I love individual therapy, you know, uh, but it is really interesting to see just what shows up differently in, in group mm-hmm. settings and mm-hmm. the different, because there's just so many different minds and histories and hearts and souls that, um you know, when you do like a hot seat where one person is sharing their experience and then you're having all those minds uh, and hearts wrap around them, it can be really beautiful to just see that, that connection or to see the, the insight that happens or the, just that warmth. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And how do you usually encourage that in a group setting? Choosing good members. <laughs> um and also modeling the, mm-hmm. you know, that type of bridging question, the outreach modeling. The, mm-hmm. I think one thing I, I think about is uh, accepting influence and showing mm-hmm. people that, that you're accepting their influence as a form of respect, or at least mm-hmm. I think that's a form of respect. 
Mm. Um, you know, just say like, that's a really good idea. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that now, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but acknowledging that you're going to do that. I think that's a really important thing. So I try to do that in my groups to, to kind of reach across and say like that emotional thing that you shared that, that touched me and thank mm-hmm. you. And, you know, modeling that reflection can be uh, useful. Beautiful. So where do you th- can folks find you if they wanted to basically talk more about these things or explore your groups as well in the future? Yeah. So um, we are, uh, the group practice that I started is called Rouse Relational Wellness, kind of like Arouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and we focus only on sex and relationships in uh we have our in-person offices in San Francisco, but we also do telehealth in California. Um, and we have groups ranging on men, sex, and anxiety, but also groups on chronic illness support, uh, uh, intimate partner survivors, intimate partner mm-hmm. violence survivors groups. Um, and then we also do individual and relationship work for people around polyamory, kink, infidelity, religious trauma, um, and we largely serve the uh, queer and BIPOC communities. Uh, so you can find us at rousetherapy.com, R-O-U-S-E, um, or Rouse Therapy uh, is our handle on all the main mm-hmm. um, social media channels. All right. We'll have as many of those in our links as we can. Great. Yeah. As If Twitter is still up in March. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, if that's still around at that point yeah. in time, I guess at some point we'll have to see whether we're going to like Mastodon or high right. at that particular point in time yeah. if that depending on how those survive yeah i'll wait and see <laughs> all right well david i want to thank you again for becoming on the show and sharing with us and stay tuned we're gonna have a few more interviews with david as we go forward in the rest of the stuff 2023 so hopefully it's been a good year for everyone and we're going to go onward and enjoy the seasonal new year and the persian new year as well thank you perry very much thank you all righty Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.